the University of California Riverside presents Blue, Gold, and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying Black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders, and community partners to explore the intersection of being Black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us again on the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast, where we are amplifying Black voices at UCR. My name is Dominique Beal. I am your host. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Aoka Bell, who is a clinical psychologist with UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services. We're going to be talking about her background and kind of what led her to psychology and how she is using her experience and her expertise in psychology to assist UCR students, um, but in particular, our black community here at UCR. Dr. Bell, how are you doing today? I am doing quite well. Thank you, Dominique. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. I'm super excited to have you on with us. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, So with that being said, let's go ahead and get started. So Dr. Bell, if you could... um, Please share with our guests a little bit about who you are, um, where you come from, and some of the experiences that you had throughout your childhood and your upbringing that kind of helped uh, you develop your black identity. Sure. All right. Now, there's a, a thick history that we went over previously, and I'm yes. going to have to do the Cliff Notes version probably. Sure. No problem. Uh, But I'm originally from the, well, first of all, right now, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I'm one of the counselors at the UC Riverside Student Counseling Center. This July was my third year here at UCR. And I am, yeah, yes, very very (laughs) happy to have made three years. Um, It it was, uh, I'm a transplant from Northern California and the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in Berkeley and raised in the East Bay, um, went to schools in Oakland and Emeryville and spent time in San Francisco and then up into the Delta, up in uh, Fairfield, Sassoon, Sacramento areas, spent a lot of time up in the Sierra Nevadas for recreation and then uh, relocated here after completing my graduate, my graduate program in clinical psychology at John F. Kennedy University. For a number of reasons, one was to be closer to family in Southern California and to have a better chance in terms of the cost of living in California, (laughs) a better chance of staying in California. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, you know, in our pre-interview that we had the other week, um, you kind of laid out for me a very um, rich history in terms of your social, your socialization, um, if you will, kind of how your parents grew up and some of the movements that they were involved in. Could you share some of that with our students, please? Sure, sure. And I'm going to have to start this with my mother, who is now in her mid-70s, and it is her generation that made a lot of moves to get me where I am today. She was one of nine born in Texas, and mm. her family moved to California in the 40s. And at that time, um, my grandfather was a very fair-skinned African-American. My grandmother was a very, very dark-skinned African-American. And once my grandmother started having children, it became clear that they weren't going to let her into some of the hospitals there to give birth. 
Wow. And so in the interest of the health and safety of his family, my grandfather packed up what was the wife and I think about three kids at that time, wow. got in a vehicle and moved to Southern California. Okay. And there they uh, had a business. He was in construction and they had uh, restaurants and uh, my mother, my grandmother helped with that. So they were a kind of an exception, a very hardworking, somewhat middle class black American family. Mm-hmm. Um, they had moved into an area in Los Angeles where they were the only black family. Um, it's oh, wow. Wilshire area. Right. And then subsequently had the remainder of my aunts and uncles. Uh, my mother had gone to high school in the LA and LA high. And once she graduated, she started university, um, but at UCLA and then ended up not finishing there 1960s rolled around, 68, uh, things got kind of heated in the central area of Los Angeles. Right. And my mother was wanting to leave L.A. and come to San Francisco with her best friend at the time Mm. to start a new life, independent of all the younger siblings she had and all Mm. the people she grew up with. She ended up uh, in the in the Berkeley area, which is where I was born, and working at UC Berkeley in the Lawrence Livermore lab. Uh, and was there for all the protests. So she was trying to get away from what was going on in central LA and Watts and the race riots going on at that time. And she it moved in right into another, <laughs> another host. Yes. of Yeah. Okay. Hot, gotcha. Yeah. Hotbed of social upheaval and revolution. Um, and we met my father, actually my biological father. She met in him in the Bay area. He was also from LA. Ironically, mm. he was connected with the black Panther party not wow. as a full-fledged member, per se, sure. but he was doing work with them and for them. And particularly, they shared an interest in training security dogs. Mm. They trained uh, Rottweilers, Dobermans, and German Shepherds for both the Black Panther Party individuals mm-hmm. uh, and families and the Berkeley police at the same time. Gotcha. So at that time, that was before I was born, once I was born... I don't remember, but I know that I started preschool uh, programs and services with the Black Panthers, like the early breakfast uh, programs mm. and some of the child care that was going on at that time uh, and education of, of young black African descent folks. From what I was told, I don't remember this, but my first words were in Swahili. Wow. Which is where my name originates is from Swahili. Okay, uh, makes so there sense. Was, there was a big um, Afro empowerment awareness movement at that time. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure I was immersed in it from a very young age. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, their union did not last much past the birth of my brother, who was about three years younger than me. Um, and my mother was working and considering continuing in school, but now raising two young children. She met my stepfather, who was also African-American. He was very fair-skinned. And he was a criminal defense attorney working in the Bay Area. Wow. Actually helping to represent some of the families of some of the Black Panther Party members who had run into some legal trouble and helping the families out. So with that, she kind of moved into another class of living with Mm -hmm. my stepfather um, and moved into another area of Oakland from Berkeley to East Oakland and up into the hills of Oakland in her attempts to give my brother and I the best opportunity to have safety, education, opportunity, 
and continue the trajectory that I think her family was headed on, being a middle class yeah. um, African American family. <clears throat> And uh, that had us going to some of the best schools for elementary mm-hmm. school, middle school, um, high school in, in the East Bay. At, at, after a while, that relationship did not work out for them. So it was me and my brother kind of just working with my mom as now mm-hmm. a single mom and figuring our way through community college, high school, community college. Right. I was not one of those four-year high school students who knew what I wanted to do. I didn't have great SAT scores. I didn't have, the world was not my oyster. Mm-hmm. Partly due because of some of the distress that was going on at home and mm-hmm. also a lot of social situations. This was the 80s. Um, there's a whole lot that I can go on about that. And <laughs> <laughs> socioeconomic issues were going on. Sure. And ours changed once my mom was divorced. Our socioeconomic status changed. We had to work a little harder. Right. also had to continue working, which meant at any time that we'd be going to college, we'd also have to be working. Sure. So I went to community college, which took me a while to get through, um, plugged away through that, and then did a transfer agreement to CSU Sacramento, because mm-hmm. by then we had moved up to the Delta, the um, Sacramento Delta area, and um, made my way to Sacramento. I was working in Davis. And this whole time, I've been working with the school districts. Wow. Working with um, special education students as an instructional mm-hmm. aide part-time while also going to school. So I had made connections in education. Um, so that's when my relationship with education started. It was partly modeled after my mother, who was very into education. Right. And through my childhood, she had attained her master's degree in public administration. Wow. I remember being packed up and taken to college with her up at what was then CSU Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, Hayward. CSU Hayward. Hayward right. Um, and going to her classes. So I was just kind of immersed into in education mm-hmm. and never saw that it would not be an opportunity for me. It was almost just, okay, this is the next step. This is what right. you do. You it's kind of like a given, right? Yeah, it's a given. Yeah. It didn't seem like without, with not within the realm of possibility because I had my role model, my mother, who was sure. doing it my whole life, even with two kids and a divorce. Yeah, oh. yeah. and so um, prior to that, I had moved to uh, a different junior college. I kind of changed three different junior colleges. And you asked mm-hmm. about how I came into psychology. Mm-hmm. And I like to share this with my, my students, actually. I still didn't have it all figured out. Even when sure. I got into community college, I was taking classes. I had many interests. I had different talents in different areas. Uh, and it wasn't until I took a psychology class in a summer school yeah. at a community college. I was actually at um, Santa Monica City College at the time. And I took this psychology class where everything just came together. I got it. I got the concepts. I got great grades. It all Mm. came to me. Not only did I see how it could relate to myself, it helped me. It helped give me a better understanding of the world and people. Right. And it just clicked. Right. So that was a little bit of a hint of where to go once I got back up to Northern California and did the transfer agreement agreement to CSU Sacramento. I decided to focus on psychology. Beautiful. So, yeah, yeah. It kind of came together. Slow motion came together. <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, of, we yeah. you made it, right? You, you made did. it through. And, you know, I, I just it's so many. It's so fascinating. One that you one that you grew up in the Black Panther era, um, but you were also able to grow up 
immersed in it, right? Um, yeah. It wasn't just something that you saw on the TV, right? A no. bunch of black militants. You were actually immersed in it. And one thing that I thought was really cool was just the fact that you were in some of its early educational programs, you know, yes. for, for young children. Mm-hmm. And one thing that stands out to me is um, proper socialization. Um, you, uh, There's a book, uh, I believe her name is Dr. Tatum Bell. She wrote a book called um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together Yes, in the Cafeteria? Yes. And in that book, she talks about socialization of black children um, and how oftentimes our socialization comes from events that take place outside of our control or in society. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people's first introduction to understanding that they're black and that means that there's a difference, at least within the, the, the power structure of our current society, a lot of times negative um, negative emotions are associated with that first experience, whether it's embarrassment or anger or shame or yes. anything like that. But for you, it seems like you were, for the most part, on the opposite end of that spectrum in terms of coming to grips and being socialized with your black identity. Um, could you speak to that some more? Because in our pre-conversation, I know there were some professional points um, in your life before psychology where you were confronted with a lot of racial tensions and, you know, not feeling fit for the work culture of that particular job. So can you kind of talk about the importance that your early socialization played in terms of equipping you to handle those later instances? Absolutely. There are a couple of things that stand out. What you mentioned about the early immersion in the socialization with the Black Panther Party and the educational programs, I feel like that was put into my DNA because I mm. don't remember it, you know, just from the top of my head. I'd have sure. to be prompted. I do remember after moving to the Oakland Hills and being surrounded by wealthy non-black children mm. and being questioned about who I was, why I was wow. there. I remember getting off the bus and being spit at and called mm. nigger and being asked, are you mixed? Are you black? Why are you here? Wow. Uh, I was one of just a handful of black children in my mm. elementary school. And I learned very quickly. That was when I learned about how different I was. I didn't realize that until then. And I realized the things I had to do to survive, which included keeping my calm Mm. and excelling academically Mm. and trying to be above question in terms of ethics and morals. Uh, Yeah. And really following the lead of my parents at the time Mm -hmm. who were trying to lead by example. Mm. So moving into, um, my career after graduation from college, mm-hmm. I was done with school. I, I was done. I said, no more. It took me mm-hmm. so long to get to community college and undergrad. Actually, the, the graduate undergrad part was quick. Mm-hmm. I went into a career with state parks because I love the outdoors. I love sure. recreation. Um, I wanted to be outside. I was very physically active, athletic. I uh, did a little bit of track in high school and was always working out. Hmm. I ended up training with the California State Parks and became a state park ranger, which Hmm. was actually a law enforcement officer. So I was a a licensed peace officer and did a training program um, in Monterey and then in Riverside County years and years ago and ended up assigned to a location actually here in Southern California, which was Hmm. my first employment role as a state park ranger. 
um, was at a, a lake in this area, and it was a very interesting training. I remember being at the training program, which was in Pacific Grove, and again being questioned as to why I was there and t- people trying to figure out how I fit in or right. how did I get chosen or was there some quota program that got me in. Right. Um, I ran my tail off. I worked out. I studied. I, I, I tried to do my best to really absorb all the material and to score as high as I could um, mm. to be there just the same as anybody else. Only I wasn't raised wanting to be a CHP officer or in law enforcement. A lot right. of the folks I was with were. Okay. I was one of five females in my training class. And from once, once I became a ranger, I found out that what I became the fifth ever African-American female California State Park ranger. And just really quickly, like yeah. just briefly touch, touch on the, the weight or the impact that learning that had on you, because I could imagine as with being one of the first black people to do anything, you're instantly thrust into this, this realm of representation, you know, um, kind of having to represent for your people in a way, even though you shouldn't be forced to do those things. So I could imagine that learning while you're in the position (laughs) that you were only the fourth or fifth black person ever, um, I I could just imagine a lot of weight came with that. Absolutely. Well, it's a tough enough spot to be in for a female. Sure. And then to be in a black female, Mm. be a black female in a white male dominated industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I found great affiliation with my female colleagues there. That that felt safe. Um, one of the former, one of the other um, African American female park rangers was kind of a mentor of mine. I, I oh, crossed nice. paths, br- br- yeah, brushed shoulders with her for a little bit, and she actually worked at the park where I worked, where I ended up being assigned. She worked there previously, early, mm. early in her career, mm. uh, and there I had heard some tales of some strange happenings that she encountered while there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't go into the details, but some things being blamed on her that was some absolutely things she didn't do. Right. I started noticing some questions started coming up around some things with myself. Mm. Uh, I did not feel safe. I didn't mm. feel I had real allies, not immediately in my area. It was also mm-hmm. at a time when the state parks was supposedly at a real deficit. There were right. hiring freezes, movement freezes. Um, I definitely felt isolated alone. And even though I was licensed to carry a firearm, I did not feel safe. Yeah. And the burden of being the fifth ever African-American female park ranger and wanting to still be there and hold that role and carry that responsibility and, you know, do it with pride, I had to forfeit that. Yeah. And so that was a difficult thing to do, to shift um, my, my area, to feel safer, to feel safer, more supported mm. among more allies. It was a, not an easy decision. Yeah, I can imagine. And so... You know, you made a point earlier in terms of when you took your first psychology course and you said once you took that course, things just started clicking for you. Things started to make sense. You were able to contextualize things. And I find that I had a very similar experience in why I'm so interested in psychology. I was fortunate enough to be able to take a psychology class back in high school. And as we're learning through a lot of the different developmental stages and various phenomena and things like that, I just started connecting Mm -hmm. bridges to my past. Like, oh, wait, 
I remember thinking this way when I was seven, eight years old. There's actually a specific term that categorizes those behaviors. And so it started making a lot of sense for me. Um, But I also felt like it really, really, really opened up my ability to be empathetic towards other people um, and trying to find a reason for why people think or behave in the way that they do. So can we let's move past your experience as um, as as a state park ranger um, and kind of get deeper into your um, career as a psychologist. Um, What led you back to psychology from being a park ranger and then Mm -hmm. just what is the significance to you um, being a black woman within the psychological field? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, just to make the connection, my my back, my the little background that I did have in psychology also really served me in law mm. enforcement in mm. terms of the community policing idea and yeah. working with members of the community and groups of kids and people right. coming in and developing programs, outreach programs, and interacting and communicating with people who were highly irate or hard to rationalize with. Mm. What I learned about people and about myself really came to serve me there. Yeah, um, I had shifted there, though, into an administrative prog- uh, position in Sacramento, which was technically a promotion, but it did put me indoors in a cubicle mm. where I slowly began to wither. Yeah. And the only way I saw out of there, from what I noticed around me, was either um, getting higher in that department which was not going to happen very quickly considering the state of the budget for state parks at that time Mm -hmm. or going back to school, going to graduate school. Okay. So that's how I made the choice. And also there's still my mom there, the role model of going to graduate school. And my brother, he was also a role model for me. He was a Mm -hmm. little bit more together in terms of timeliness. He had already been planning a graduate school transition. And so that kind of made me see, oh, this is possible too. I can figure this next step out. If I want to get Mm. out of the cubicle, I got to get back into school. Okay. So I did get into uh, John F. Kennedy University in in, uh, Pleasant Hill, or it was in Orinda at that time, then it moved to Pleasant Hill. And at the same time, I was working in a psychiatric inpatient hospital. Mm. Uh, I was working night shifts there to start while also being a graduate student. Uh, which is very taxing, very yeah. tiring. Um, but it came back. Like you said, the psychology of everything just came back to me, how mm. to make it work, how to get this insight into people, how to support people. Yes. Having worked in the psychiatric hospital also provided me with an opportunity to develop my empathy for folks yes. and have an understanding of their stories, their history, particularly trauma and abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, substance use, all kinds of the whole gamut of things that end people in psychiatric health and uh, in, um, inpatient psychiatric health care. I was working especially with adolescents. So okay. that really tugged at my heartstrings, too. Mm-hmm. And um, the empathy was easy to come by there. Uh, I, I guess another factor that helped me to develop my empathy to a degree that's just completely immeasurable is um, a few months into my new graduate school plan, my brother was killed. Wow. And he passed away. He was in the East Coast um, going to graduate school, working on a PhD in sociology, nearly done with his program, um, but had Mm. an accident, a lot of 
questions and un- unknown factors, but he didn't make it through to get his degree and his dissertation completed. Yeah. And here I was just starting out right. the program. So that shifted things for me in a way that nothing else could have in terms mm. of the capacity for empathy. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we kind of talked about this uh, in our pre-conversation, but, you know, as, as psychologists or as people who love psychology in general and the, the need or the want to help people to be empathetic, to understand, it still doesn't take away the fact that you have a whole personal life and personal yeah. trauma that you have to deal with while actively learning how to assist other people um, with theirs. And I think that kind of ties more into how personal of a science psychology can really be, especially if you're um, open to understanding all that it entails. You very quickly realize that um, you very quickly realize that, well, I (laughs) this stuff is great and I can help other people. But I have so much that I need to unpack myself right now. So I could just imagine, you know, the difficulty it was as you're learning on how to assist people while actively trying to apply those lessons to yourself could be quite difficult, I would imagine. Quite difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's a stigma. There's a stigma about reaching out for support, even as a therapist yourself. Fortunately, in my program, it was a part of the requirements of the program to also be in therapy. Mm. Um, I was also in therapy. And Interesting. Did I didn't know that. You had to be in therapy while yes. going through the program? Wow, that's actually a, fascinating. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, there's a certain amount of hours required. I believe it was mm. 50, something to that effect. Wow, okay. Something like that, or maybe okay. a couple of years. I was mm. in the whole time, and I'm very glad I was. Yeah. Especially, I didn't take a full year off or anything. I just mm. took a summer off and then kept plugging away because what else was I going to do? I had stopped everything mm. and changed my plan and was trying to work. But um, yeah, it was it was uh, humbling, um, but also highlighted. Or it gave me a great excuse. It was yeah. a very valid reason to seek therapy as a yeah. person. You know. And so having that is helpful, but not necessarily. I don't think it's necessary to have such a tragedy or such mm. measurable from the outside strife to qualify you for receiving or seeking mental health support. Um, and I kind of lost track of your question. No, I, I, I think you're, you're right on track. I mean, we were just kind of talking about the difficulty of not only learning the skill of psychology and how to assist people, but while simultaneously dealing with your own trauma that obviously takes place in your life. But I, one thing you know, I want to highlight for our students is one thing in particular that you said just now is that you don't need to go through what is deemed as an insanely traumatic experience, the loss of a loved one or you know an accident or a crime that may have happened to you or being a victim of something violent or nothing traumatic and insanely detrimental to your mental health needs to happen just so you can properly utilize mental health resources. Um, I think a lot of people, especially in the black community, you know, that stigma of reaching out for help, especially when it comes to um, mental health disorders, um, 
you know, there's a long history there. You know, yes. there was a time where our people were told wanting your liberation and freedom was a mental health disorder. And so I think there's a lot of history that students and the black community in general can unpack there and be help guide them to be more willing to reach out for mental health services should they need it. Um, and I kind of want to steer the conversation to specifically um, here at UCR and the work that you're doing and also highlighting our black community at um, UCR. And so in your professional opinion, at least as it pertains to UCR, but you can expand it past UCR if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that the counseling and psychological services are being well utilized or underutilized by the black student community here at UCR? Looking at it in terms of the black student population, mm. because of the higher relative number of black students at UCR compared to other universities, other UCs, I feel like the services are underutilized by black mm. students, the counseling okay. service. Yeah, but they're also utilized in a different way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, a lot of the students that I work with, I, I'm going to just preface this by emphasizing there's no way that I want to suggest that I only want to serve or I only do serve black students. Absolutely. Um, I'm definitely supportive of folks of all gender identities, sexual orientations, race, ethnicities, uh, religious backgrounds. But for the purposes of this discussion, we're focusing Mm -hmm. on the black student population. Yes, ma'am. So I do want to specify in terms of working with the black students on campus, um, I do notice, which kind of is in line with some research that I'd done in in graduate school, Mm. the approaches to working with a lot of folks from, I'm going to say, African-American or black student population, um, specifically, more specifically, African-American, shorter term interventions, kind of more problem-oriented, solution-focused, definitely skill development, coping skill development. It's basically not a lifelong sentence. Getting mental Mm. health support is something that you can get when you need it, and you don't Mm. have to keep going. You don't have to keep using it when you don't feel like you need it. In fact, if you don't need it, then we've done our job. I've done my job, and I'm so happy that you don't necessarily feel like you must come back. Yeah. Uh, so that they're utilized differently, which might make it look a little different in the overall numbers as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that when I arrived at UCR, I was the only African-American therapist at CAPS. Wow. Uh, and I think before me, I met the outgoing one on my way in. Okay. And I don't think there was a relationship that had been developed there between that therapist and the African Students Program Okay. Yeah, it was my aim coming to UCR to develop that, to nice. make that connection, help make that connection, reach out to the black student community, mm. try to be a face that they will feel comfortable at least asking questions to. If not. And, and just really quickly for our, for our listeners who don't know, ASP, our African Student Programs, is a black resource center here on campus um, that focuses on providing a safe space and resources to all black students. Um, There is a very strong um, pan-African ideals that ASP tries to put forth because as black people, we understand that, you know, we're descendant from Africans and it's very important that we support each other as such. So um, Dr. Bell, please continue. I just wanted to put that point in for students who didn't know what ASP was. Sure. Thank you for that. I I think honestly, And unfortunately, if we had more black therapists, I would think the services at CAPS would be utilized more by black students. 
Gotcha. Okay. There's safety uh, amongst folks that you assume have a similar background that might look mm-hmm. like you. Whether or not it's true is, right. is another thing, but right. I get it. I was mm-hmm. there. I remember being mm-hmm. there and needing a black female therapist only. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of students who come to CAPS and work with therapists who are not me and who are not right. black. A lot of black students right. who are coming to CAPS and mm-hmm. using the services with with therapy is different because we can't exactly say, can you tell people about your service? Can you let us let them know that you are black, but you still feel supported because everything <laughs> right. is confidential. You know? Yeah, exactly. We can't really market in that way or solicit marketing. Right. Well, and you know, um, I do think there is some truth to that, right? The comfortability factor, especially when it comes to your mental health, because that mm-hmm. is such a vulnerable space to occupy. And it's, even doubly more vulnerable when you want to try and bring someone else into that and have them poke around and try and sort out and organize your thoughts for you. You know, I think back to my undergrad experience, I was dealing with a lot of family issues and personal issues outside of school um, to the point where I had no choice but to go to the psychological services because I, I finally realized like, okay, as introspective as I am, I Mm -hmm. cannot figure it out from inside the bubble um, and I worked with a, a, a white woman psychologist, mm-hmm. and she was fantastic. She was yeah. very great. Um, she was very empathetic. Um, but there were times throughout, um, you know, our sessions where, you know, family matters in particular, like my relationship with my father. Right. So being a mm-hmm. black son and having a black father and mm-hmm. some of the complications in psychology that we could spend a whole episode talking about that. I can yeah. tell it was a little bit hard for her to, I wouldn't say grasp, but her ability to fully identify with what I was experiencing, um, I could sense as a patient was a little bit challenging for her. So I think having that representation in our psychological services would be very, very beneficial. And it's not to say that you, Dr. Bell, as an African-American woman, couldn't service a young white girl or a young white man Mm -hmm. or a anyone in between um but being able to see someone that you can at least on the surface level identify with kind of helps to break down those stigmas and those barriers that you know prevent our community from utilizing these resources yes yes and i want to touch on what you said about the stigma and the barriers and the apprehension of seeking services there is such thing as a healthy cultural paranoia there mm. is such thing as a, a suspiciousness, a, a conservativeness that has kept folks, black folks, safe, alive, mm. and mm. healthier. Uh, and psychology has not a great history, really, uh, with anyone who's not of the dominant identity. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so it's understandable why we might be hesitant right. to reach out to people who don't seem to have our same experiences. Mm. Uh, that's definitely been proven that it has not been a safe place. Mm-hmm. I think even compared to your experience, which is not in the distant past, but compared to just now, just mm-hmm. right now, with sure. this social awakening that's happening for a lot of non-people of color. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they might be a little different in the room with a person of color or someone of a non-dominant um, identity. Mm-hmm. It, they you might get a different sense that they might be a little bit more open, a little bit more sure. open, might, might get what you're talking about right. to a different degree than even what this time last year. Mm-hmm. No, one one hundred percent, and I think that's important. 
Um, and it is important to have uh, cross-cultural psychological examinations, if you will, because ultimately, how are you going to learn the logics, the beliefs, the thought patterns that exist in a group of people in a specific culture if you're not going to at least be willing to try and immerse yourself in that, right? Sure. Um, the better you understand someone's culture, the better you can provide psychological services to them. I, I think that's a pretty safe um, statement to make. And so I think it, uh, it, it holds a lot of weight. And so I want to also have you kind of talk about, because, you know, it, it's in my opinion that, you know, being black amplifies everything about your being and what it is that you want to do, right? So being a black person occupying the a space in the in the um, psychological world, for students, for young black students who are looking to become psychologists or to immerse themselves in the field of psychology, what are some suggestions that you might have for them to kind of help them navigate that space to see if it's something that they're truly interested in? Um, and how could it also further benefit them in paying back towards their community? Wow. Well, right now is a great time to be looking <laughs> for those kind of opportunities, how yes. to be to supportive of others. You don't need a license to provide mental health therapy to support other people who might wow. have some mental health needs. Mm. There's all kinds of online resources or resources online um, I'm going to just drop this name because I'm seeing her everywhere and I know she's created um, some forums, Taraji P. Henson. Oh, okay. Yes. And there, there's, um, there's a, I think it's called Black Girl Psychology, Black Girl mm-hmm. Psychology, something to that effect. Okay. And I could forward you some more information too, specifically focused on uh, folks who, young folks who want to gain more information and yeah. awareness of issues within the black community or ways to ad- to address mental wellness, Mm. black mental wellness. Um, But UCR does have a great psychology program, particularly if you're interested in working with children and doing research. So I can plug that. Uh, Honestly, when I was doing a little bit of private practice in my past, and even not so much, even with um, trainees that I've had in the past, people in even other education areas, if they email me, if I got an email from someone and they just wanted some information about how to be a psychologist or what does that mean or what are the different Mm. opportunities in terms of providing counseling to people, I would be so happy to respond and support to that. So something as simple as going on psychology today Mm. on the internet, on the web, and Mm -hmm. looking for a black therapist and picking them and saying you are a student and you're not looking for therapy necessarily, but I'm curious about, you know, how you got where you are or what you can say about what you're doing. So seeking mentorship. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's critical. wish I had more of that. I Mm. I really wish I had more of that. That's part of what we're working on here um, in the IE, which is kind of a desert in terms of resources, Mm-hmm. In many ways, but connecting with other black therapists is, is helpful or just even other black professionals. Right. But for young people who have more questions about psychology or about black mental health, um, 
go ahead and ask whoever your psychology 101 professor is. And, mm. you know, they're going to have to do the work. If they don't mm-hmm. know, they can find out. And right. they should be prepared for the next person that has that question for them. Right. Um, I would say that I would be open to responding to folks if they were to email me. Of course, I have to remind folks that my email is not confidential, not the UCR right. email. Sure. But those who are interested in education and psychology or the path to get there, a lot of my work at ASP was just kind of shooting the breeze with young yeah. people who were interested in or thinking about psychology or wondering what a career might mean or look like. And, you know, um, I, I, I appreciate you extending um, that offer to students, to prospective students and any current UCR students that might be um, watching and who want to kind of get deeper into the field of psychology, but they're not 100 percent sure like yeah. what that entails. Sure. Um, mentorship is critical. Um, and I would say it would have really, really benefited me more in my yes. pursuit of psychology if I had someone that I could utilize as a mentor so I could really balance out like, okay, I'm gaining all of this knowledge. I'm gaining all of these psychological terms. And, Mm -hmm. but yes, I know I can be a therapist, but still the application or learning how to use your knowledge and apply it to different scenarios can be quite challenging. Um, and so yes, mentorship is critical. So I definitely want to thank you for, um, you know, being open to our students. Um, and we'll definitely make sure that we, um, plug your email address in the description and in the video so our students can uh, utilize that. So we're coming up on the end of our interview. So there's just two questions I have left for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to spend a lot of time on either of them, but I do think it's important to touch on. Um, so for any current UCR student, but in particular our black students and any prospective students, um, but in particular our black students that might be actively struggling with that stigma of reaching out for mental health. Um, If you could just provide a a brief expression of encouragement, like to kind of help push them over that edge to encourage them to go and get those resources. Sure. Yeah. I think some things that are helpful is that as an adult, even though you're a young person, you're in college, you're an adult, those of you that are 18 and over your records, your medical records, any mental health records are completely confidential. Mm. No one can access those except for you. Mm-hmm. Or if there's something that comes up legally, which is another realm, but mm-hmm. we, we talk to you about that. Basically, even if you just wanted to call our support line and right. do a virtual walk-in with one of our counselors who are available yeah. five days a week, eight to five, Um, And then we have crisis services available between the overnight hours and on the weekends. Any document, we do have to document the fact that you called in the interest Mm. of safety, but we don't share your record with the university or with anywhere else that that you Mm. have not given us permission to have access to your information. Mm. So no, your parents aren't going to find out, even if you have the student health insurance and they're paying for it or if they paid for school, it doesn't matter in mental health and in the medical field in general, your records are yours if you are 18 mm. and over. Beautiful. So that's a start. And then once you are talking with someone, for the most part, everything that you do share with them is completely confidential as well. We, have, we are not allowed to share that with anyone, but there are some conditions in which we have to because we're mandated reporters. Sure. And if we receive information that leads us to believe a child 
a senior citizen or a dependent adult, meaning someone with a disability who is depending sure. on others, if we feel that they are in danger of being abused or killed or abandoned or neglected, then yes. we will tell you that this is that, that kind of information and we would have to share it. We don't have to share who it came from, but mm. in the interest of protecting that individual or individuals, we're mandated ethically as psychologists, as therapists, not everyone on campus is this way, just from the counseling center. We mm-hmm. have to share that, but we let you know far in advance right. just to kind of help ensure the sense of privacy. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So students utilize these services. Um, psychological services outside of a university setting can be pretty expensive. That's right. Can be also hard to find an effective counselor or psychologist in your area at times. So if you're going to be on a college campus, whether you have big problems or small problems, nothing's going to hurt from popping in and doing a checkup every once in a while. You have people here that are more than willing to support you on your journey of, you know, being more free mentally, um, supporting yourself mentally, emotionally. Um, So please, please, please do not be afraid to utilize these services. And Dr. Bell, just our final question. um, Can I add one thing? Yeah, no, please. Okay. I just want to clarify that right now, popping in, looks like a virtual visit because we're not actually in our offices right now. That might look a little different come the fall or might be having a hybrid model. But right now, everything is being done remotely. So I'm sitting here in my home office, which was not a home office a few months ago. (laughs) We're all in our separate home offices and we're here available for you. You just call the number 951-827-5531 you may have to leave a, num- uh, a message right now because we're working on getting the phones transferred. But once you leave mm-hmm. a message, one of our receptionists calls you back and then helps you out, connects Perfect. you with what you need to do. And then we can speak with you either by phone or mm-hmm. through video conferencing. And there's a way Perfect. that they set you up with video conference through Zoom to meet with you. So just that's what popping in looks like right now. <laughs> yes. And thank and thank you. You know, yeah. It's so crazy that we're in the midst of a pandemic and yet still sometimes forget that we're in the midst of a right, pandemic. Right, right. So, it, it can happen. Yeah, because we're yeah. still working, right? We're still We're busy. still working. The work yeah. still needs to get done. You know what yeah. I'm saying? We still need to give out these resources and the support. So, yes, um, until things change and we're full-fledged back on campus, please make sure you visit the website. Give, uh, give a call to the phone number that Dr. Bell just provided, um, and you still will get those services at the same level of care, whether we were in person or we're hosting it through Zoom. So thank you, Dr. Bell. You're welcome. Counseling.ucr.edu and counseling services are free. Hey, anything free is for me. That's, That's what I always like to say. You know, you're already paying for it. Your student services pay for it. Exactly. All right. Okay. And so just to wrap up our interview, I always like to end um, with what I like to call black optimism. Obviously, we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. And if it wasn't for their ability to look into the future and be optimistic, Dr. Bell and I wouldn't be here having this conversation right now. So I want to ask Dr. Bell um, if you could share with the students what is your most optimistic vision of the future as it pertains to the black community at UCR um, in terms of utilizing psychological services? I feel like ideally and optimistically, Mm -hmm. the black presence will be reflected 
anywhere and everywhere you go at UCR, regardless if you are in facilities or if you are in uh, administration and in, you know, chancellor, vice chancellor areas, ideally we will see more of ourselves. We've got some work to do on increasing the population and getting folks into the university and getting degrees and all that. Mm -hmm. But I think just more presence would be very helpful. Absolutely. Um, I agree with you there. And that's part of the goal and initiative of this podcast is to amplify the black voices that we do have here at UCR that are currently supporting the black community, but also to bring in more black folks. We yes. want y'all. Yes, <laughs> we, want y'all. Come. we want y'all. We want y'all. We need here. y'all. <laughs> yes. So if you if you're even flirting with the idea of becoming a black psychologist, Pull up on us. Email Dr. Bell. Come and visit our psycho, um, psychology center when we're allowed to be back on campus. Mm-hmm. But until then, go to the website and just kind of poke around. Um, it's very important that you know we continue to occupy this space and yes. to bring more people into the fold so that way we can continue to better support future generations. Um, and with that being said, we've re- reached the conclusion of our interview. So this has been another episode of the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. We had Dr. Bell from Counseling and Psychological Services joining us. I am your host, Dominique Bill. Thank you, guys, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you, Dominic. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later.